Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Hello, guys. It's MMA fighter Chael Sonnen. Check out my podcast, You're Welcome, with Chael Sonnen every Wednesday and Friday right here at Podcast One. We cover the latest in mixed martial arts and everything else going on in the world of sport. Listen free to You're Welcome with Chael Sonnen, exclusively available on Apple Podcasts, at podcastone.com, and on the Podcast One app. If you love the show, share it with a friend and leave us a rating and review. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. A lot going on around the NBA, and I want to talk with Sirat Sohi, talented writer with SB Nation, The Athletic, and numerous other wonderful outlets. And we started out with her piece, which is on SBN, about the Houston Rockets, a lot of interesting things going on with them, what makes them special. And then we also talk about the Toronto Raptors team that she follows the most closely, and then the playoff picture more broadly. Really fun conversation. And this week's episode is brought to you by BetDSI. If you use the MADGM, M-A-D-G-M promo code, you can get a 200% member bonus on your first deposit, and you get a 25 25- dollar NCAA tournament bet just for registering and our friends at true car great place to buy new and used cars conversation runs a little bit over an hour i really enjoyed it i think you will too and here it comes thank you so much for coming on thanks for having me we've been talking about doing this for a little while now but i'm really happy with the timing because you just wrote a a very interesting piece on the Houston Rockets, one of the biggest stories in the NBA going right now, as of as of the moment we're talking, it looks like they are going to be the number one overall seed in in the playoff picture. They'll have home court. And where I think is a good place to start, there are a lot of different elements of the piece and of the Rockets that are worth discussing, is how this team is misconceived. And one of the ways that you keyed in on, and I think was a great way to do it, was just in terms of the the amount of movement and distance that the players on the Rockets cover in a given game. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. You know, the Rockets are, they're supposed to be the, the pace and space team of the NBA. That's kind of been their reputation, just being being forward thinking and leading the charge that way. But as, as it turns out, they run the least amount of miles per game than anybody else in the NBA on both ends of the floor, actually. They're number they're number 30 in, in distance traveled in offense and defense, which, I mean, it kind of makes sense because to them it's all about efficiency. So it's it's pretty efficient to run the best offense in the league and not have to move around a lot, especially when you got a bunch of old guys on your team. It's that and then also the way that D'Antoni has constructed their their defensive schemes, and this has been an adjustment over the course of the year, Sometimes people think a switch heavy scheme is super active and it and it is in specific ways, but in terms of individual player movement, it actually isn't because it's a lot more kind of station to station stuff. You're not like I, I like to think of JJ Reddick for this. And JJ Reddick, you know, he runs around a bunch of screens, he just goes around there. And so in terms of how you handle that, it's not one person just going zigzag all around the court or whatever. You're doing it piecemeal. And so in terms of distance traveled, generally speaking, it cuts that down. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's one of the things that I wrote was that 
for the Rockets, they might not move around a lot, but every movement means something. And maybe the Warriors are a bad example for this, but there's a, there's honestly, there's a lot of teams in the NBA that run a motion, motion offense and they just get nothing out of it. They set a whole bunch of lackluster screens or they get guys running around in, in a position that was like more, more tenable for, for their substitute. And then all of a sudden you got, you got a guy coming off a screen who can't even shoot. And like, you know, it's just, there's a lot of things that can really easily be switched. Just like a lot of actions that really aren't gonna, gonna be high leverage. Well, the Houston, Houston Rockets don't really, they do run off all actions. They just don't run a lot of them. It's just usually like, you know, a simple pin down screen before, before getting into a pick and roll or something like that. But every single thing they do is has intention behind it. And I like the way that it kind of got framed in the later part of the piece around Joe Johnson. Joe Johnson is a recent addition, so they can actually be very useful in terms of seeing the differences in, a, in an approach because they have been in a different system until that point. And a quote that he brought up was, that it's it's ideal for him. That's ideal for me. I, I think he gives the coaching staff a sense of how to work with us. And everything fits with this idea of, of sometimes of older players, but also using the strengths of guys. And for me, the prototypical example of this on defense and on offense, but really more on defense, is Harden because he is now put in a much more tenable situation because switching systems, we saw this with the Clippers actually as a couple years ago, it allows players to make much simpler reads and stay engaged in a different way. And so with Harden, off the top of my head, and I've done a little bit of digging on this for various purposes, this to me has been his best defensive year. That doesn't mean he's been great, but he's been a lot better. And I think the system has really helped him make to reach that level. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, first of all, there's a lot of teams that will get into situations with Harden, especially where they decide that they're going to post him up, which is the exact wrong thing that you want to do if you want to take advantage of Harden defensively. It, he's still he's still a lot easier to break down. I think he's improved in that regard. I think you know effort alone is, has has made it a little bit easier on him, and he's surrounded by better personnel. But you know that's that, that's the way you want to do it. When I see people taking down the post, I'm like this. Look, listen, like this is the strongest player in the league, like one of the strongest players in the league for his position, maybe the strongest for his position. Why are you backing him down? Like, where what is that going to get you? The post up is already for most most teams an inefficient play. So then you're going to do it against a guy who can actually hold his ground, and usually you're going to do it with a player who you know, is kind of antithetical to that whole approach. Like usually when when there's a switch, you're going to get a guy who's not actually really comfortable doing that, but is kind of just into a situation where where, where they end up doing that. And, that. and then at the same time, the Rockets are really, really good at double teaming in the post. That's kind of the, the other strand of their defense is when they – when they get stuck on a switch that is actually going to be bad for them, you know, they'll all come over a little bit. Like somebody, somebody will sag down the baseline guy will usually come over with a hard double and they zone up on the shooters and they're all generally pretty, even, even though there is, there is an age, age issue. They're all pretty agile when it comes to closing out on shooters. And they're also, they're vets. They're not really going to jump up and like, you know, give you a lot of leeway as far as, as far as turning the close out into something either. To me, what might be the single most interesting part of their system is what you just got into. And I watched their games against New Orleans and Minnesota over the last week. And what Houston did is they treated the switching system that they have as a fact of life, as a reality. And instead of 
modifying that part of what they're doing because of Carl Anthony Towns and Anthony Davis. They just use doubling as a supplement to it. And I think that's really smart because it forced other players to beat them. And it's true that both of those teams are a little bit more shorthanded right now than they would be theoretically in a playoff series, which is for Houston, you have to kind of see everything in that context because of where they are. But I like that because it makes it easier on the players and they can do the reads. And Houston also, another thing that kind of transfers to the playoffs, they have done a better job than most teams in the regular season of making sure those doubles, making sure that help comes from the least damaging place. So we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. On Tuesday, they played the Blazers. And one of the most striking elements of that game was P.J. Tucker was often his base assignment was on Evan Turner. He basically wasn't guarding Evan Turner when Turner was at the three-point line because he knows that Evan Turner is not going to take that many threes and he can normally get out there. That's not what that's not his M.O., And that's exactly the way to handle those sorts of circumstances, because in a switch, you are going to get into circumstances where your one-on-one player has a disadvantage, but you can mitigate that disadvantage by having somebody in the right spot to make life harder on that offensive player. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And to your point, uh, the other the other strand of of their ability to double and not really give up a high leverage shot is that when they do double, let's say they are doubling off a guy in the corner who can actually shoot because they do tend to mostly double double out of those corners and they will kind of sag down. But that's kind of like where the, the, the strong one comes from. Like they'll usually just have so- somebody in between the above the break area and the corner, either to intercept the pass. Like they've got they've got some long guys on their team, or to or to close out. It's not like they're doubling and completely leaving anybody. They kind of just double and get into like they continue just playing that like zone switch defense at the same time. So they can somehow double and still still shrink the floor for shooters. Yeah, I think that's a great point and a part of what's led to them being successful on that end. And yes, Houston first in offense, that's not a surprise. We'll talk about the offense a little bit, but eighth in defense, really, I think this threshold for them and pretty much any of these other elite offenses is, can you do enough to slow down other teams so that you can that you can win a game when your offense isn't great. And yeah, I would say to a point, the Portland game was an interesting example of this. Both teams had some inconsistencies and, and had some surprising points. Damon CJ did not shoot very well in that game, but Harkless and Aminu absolutely did. And Houston's defense has reached that. I actually wrote about this for The Athletic back when Houston won the third game, the rubber match of the three games the Rockets and Warriors played this year, is... That element that Cleveland manifestly failed in last year during the finals, which was Cleveland scored on the Warriors fine. That wasn't an, that wasn't an issue. I think their offensive rating was over, I think it was over 115 in the finals, but they couldn't stop the Warriors at all. And yeah, everybody likes to think about that whole, you know, if you could be a shutdown defense and a shutdown and, and just a, a, a unstoppable offense. Yes, a team theoretically built like that would be the favorites to win the finals every year, of course. But Houston has done a really nice job of fitting in everything that makes sense with their approach and also. Also, I think that goes into personnel, and I've been super impressed with what Murray did, getting P.J. Tucker, getting Mbah Mute on the minimum, one of the best minimum contracts in the entire league, but also incorporating them in ways that accentuates their positives and minimizes their negatives. Yeah, no, I, I would, I, I totally agree with you on that front. I think a lot of people are actually pretty. It seemed like people were kind of confused when those signings were made. I mean, yeah, there's hypothetically there's three and D guys, but I think the idea was kind of, uh, hey, um, these guys aren't really knocked on shooters, so it kind of makes 
in, in your in your eyes, it would kind of be like, okay, shrink the floor and, and live with those guys' shots. But first of all, they're shooting incredibly well, and they're they're shooting from their hot spots. You got one. I can't remember which side works best for which guy, but like PJ and and Luke, they shoot from their respective corners like a ridiculous amount. Like I think for, over forty seven percent or something like that. So like they're situated in places where they're more likely to make their shots as well. It's just it's just incredibly well researched and and well well positioned and. I think it makes it really, really hard to scout because, like, another thing that was out in the piece was that it, they do run a very a more read and react type of offense. So, uh, like, what do you what are you really gonna do? Like, you got when you have two of the big the best ISO players in the league surrounded by a bunch of shooters who are likely to hit shots from the places that they're situated. Right, and that ties in with what I think is the most interesting element of what the Rockets are doing, and that is a lot of us, you, me, you know, the basketball Twitter, if we want to call it that, have focused justifiably on Houston's isolation dominance. And I think it's getting misconstrued to a point because I don't think that's necessarily what Houston wants to do. It's just that they put so much stress on opponents that opponents have to switch a lot. And when you switch a lot, then you get into isolations. And so what Houston has done is they are more open to it and they know how to use that to their benefit because A, they have great isolation players and Harden and Chris Paul, but they also reduce the ability for other players to help through having shooting ideally one through five, often one through four, just depending on who's on the floor. But even Capella has gravity in a different way. And so they've made isolation basically into a distillation and that wasn't really possible in the 80s and 90s. So people like me who kind of grew up and didn't like isolation ball, it's because it didn't exist in this form at that time. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, absolutely, and I think I think if you were to ask the Rockets what type of play type they preferred, I don't think they necessarily even have one. It's more so I think I think the thing that they try to do is they just try to make you make impossible decisions, and I don't like I don't think it really matters to them how they do that. And the other element that makes what Houston does so much different than other teams is they have these two spectacular isolation players. I mean, they're a historical isolation team, but also those players are spectacular passers. So this is not Kobe or numerous other players who emulated Kobe on various teams just saying, okay, I have this guy one-on-one. I'm going to take him. That is our entire offense. No, if the other team can stop Harden or Chris Paul from getting necessarily what they want or just the opportunity presents itself for pass, those guys can make those looks. And so that affects help. That affects the way the man who is being isolated on thinks about his responsibilities. And so they are able to take this into a into a different place and I think that passing might be the most underappreciated part of what has led Houston's isolation to be successful. Yeah, I think I think you're totally right. Yeah, that's that's something I don't that I don't think has really been touched touched on enough. Like you're dealing with two guys who aren't just great passers. These are generational passers. They're two of the best passers in the league and Harden especially is just exceptional at finding shooters. Like he's just he's just a player who is built playing pick and roll basketball. And that's kind of like what the what the offense is essentially it's either drive and score or drive and kick and you make the decision based on based on what the defense allows you to do and you can't really do that if you don't have two two guys who are completely able to make split second decisions 
playing against some pretty pretty good defenders who, you know, against most opponents are usually able to contain a pick and roll that would like let's say it was let's say it's some other guy let's say it's Jeff Teague and and, and Clint Capella and like let's let's put Jeff Teague's passing skills in there with with Clint Capella on the pick and roll like that's not as potent as Harden because he's able to get it in there in that split second that the big man kind of has to decide that he's going to commit to you but he's not all the way there yet. Like that, that is an incredible underrated talent. Cause at the end of the day, if, if every scoring team could do this, they would. I mean, we can take it to, to Toronto where I'm at with the Raptors. I mean, DeMar DeRozan is a guy who's pretty, who is learning to try to be that way. And he's done a, he's done a pretty terrific job of it as far as his progress goes. But there's a complete difference between being a willing and, and semi skilled passer who is like finding his, his way around and, but still primarily being a scorer. And, and a guy like James Harden, who just he just gets it. Yeah, and Harden, it's it's really in his wheelhouse. I mean, I followed him just by happenstance for a long time because he was a player I wanted UCLA to recruit when he was at Artesia in L.A. And then he, I was pretty devastated when he went to Arizona State. But his ability as a passer was always so intriguing with him. I, I worried about you know whether he was going to work on his body enough. He was, but he was his talent was unbelievable. And he's just living in his wheelhouse. This is the best form of him from a basketball perspective. The reads he makes in their offense are reads he's incredibly good at. And the way that he can find opponents, if it's the roll guy, he's one of the best passers to the to a hard roller in the entire league. His repertoire bounce passes. And just like can be frustrating to viewers, to opponents, to opposing fans, that he's so good at using officiating to his advantage in terms of reaches and everything like that. It's actually a parallel. Um, my pup, Nate Duncan's brought this up a lot that the, some of the low passes he throws, he's basically created a no lose proposition out of it because he throws it at an angle where the most likely part of an opponent that is going to make contact with that ball is their foot. And while I disagree with the way it's officiated at certain points, generally speaking, if you throw a pass and it hits an opponent's foot, they're going to call that a kickball. So basically, what that means is if the pass makes it through, then then you get the pass and. He, with Harden, it does more than anybody else. But if it hits an opponent, it's probably going to hit their foot, and that's going to be called a kick, and then you get another chance. And Houston has a great offense, so they get another bite at the apple. Unless it's and and that resets the shot clock if it's super late. So it's kind of a you know damned if you do, damned if you don't, and that's remarkable. It's another kind of cheat code, if you will, in it. And that's not it's not dirty pool. It's not anything else. It's just using the rules of the game and the way the game is officiated to his and the Rockets' advantage. Oh, that's incredible. I mean, I, I never even thought about that, but that's definitely something I'm going to have to, I'm going to keep an eye out for that because of like, that's just, that is some next level aiming right there. I'd also, I also want to add like just a, a point on Houston since we've been, I mean, we, we've been pretty much singing their praises and, and rightfully so. I honestly, I'm at the point now where I'm just, I'm, I'm flat out picking them to win, win a championship. But one of the things that we saw last night, like, you know, Dame, DJ had tough games, but Nurkic really, really got it going down the post. And that's also something that I think we saw in there in Houston's loss to Toronto. And I'd say like the the one thing that I think opponents can do if they do have a guy like Nurk or, or, or Jonas Valanciunas or, or DeMar, who also likes to, to go in the post and is, is effective there, is both teams really... You know, I think to an extent Houston lived with it with uh with Nurkic, but both teams once they got the ball in the post, they went right away. Like it was immediate catch and shoot, catch and move. 
Because it takes some time to set a double. And that's one thing I noticed is like one way that you can actually pretty effectively score against Houston is if, and again, you need the personnel and then you're still kind of dealing with an ISO post situation. But that is one effective way that I've, that I've seen some opponents uh, beat Houston's system. Yeah, Nurkic did a great job of that. Paralleling Nikola Jokic is spectacular. Those guys used to be teammates at attacking a mismatch immediately. And that's the secret to it is don't take a beat. Just get in there right away. And Harden folded up more. Sometimes Nurkic was posting up on Harden. He folded up more on those than usual, and that's a big concern because in the playoffs, and I've made this criticism before of the Boston Celtics, where you are going to face a higher proportion of superlative individual talents in the playoffs because of selection bias. Superlative individual talents more often than not make the playoffs, and more often than not, the teams that survive long enough to play any team in the second round, conference finals, NBA finals, are going to be teams with those players. And that will lead to problems. The other big issue with the Rockets is the unprecedented nature of what they're doing. Let's let's just call it an isolation, even though it's not necessarily the MO. It feels to me like there is some gravity to it in the sense that if you are an outlier, there is always this question about how whether that is just who you are or whether you are outperforming and will regress to the mean. And it wouldn't take much regression for that to become a problem when you play better opponents. And so I think they'll figure it out. I think that Tony and the players that they have are going to do it. I think the Rockets are great. But that is a concern when when basically James Harden going one-on-one against whoever is on him and taking that step back three, if he makes 40 plus percent of those, the Rockets aren't going to lose very often. But if we start to get more into the 35 to 38 range, it changes the effective value of that possession and it changes the math a little bit. And I think they could try other things. But there will be games where it's close and it comes down to that. And variance is real and variance is a concern for everybody. But I think to a point it is for the Rockets as, as much or more than almost anybody. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. I've, I've been thinking about this point. And one of the most most interesting things about it, I think, is like this idea that we've have we gone so far around the bend that now we're, we're at a point where isolation basketball is the kind that can't be trusted in the playoffs. Because I swear to God, like, you know, we, we just finished this with three-point shooting and, and movement-heavy offenses. And, and you know, we, you can't play at a high pace in the playoffs. And you can't you can't win being a three-point shooting team. And you can't win when your point guard's your best player. Like, we, there's a lot of... We just finally got over a lot of this stuff. And it's, it seems like, you know, people are... I don't, I don't think I don't think that y- y- you do this. I mean, you're, you're a lot more discerning and, and specific with stuff like this but it, it turns into a thing where everybody wants to make a declaration about what playoff basketball is and it's this and it's not that and this is what works now and the truth is the best strategy executed by the best players is what works and there's a whole lot of randomness in it like you said there's a whole lot of variance in it but for the most part you know there's seven games in a series there's there, a lot of the variance gets gets taken care of it's just it's just so interesting to me that we've you know now we're, we've pivoted this far yeah, that's that's an interesting point. I've always been skeptical of isoball. It's just aesthetically and because of the idea of personnel gets into that. I think back to even the Paul George when he was on the Pacers against the Raptors in that series. And I was beating the drum saying that there was going to be a challenge for them. I actually picked the Raptors in seven. They won in seven. I felt good about that. But it is a, a very real concern in certain elements, but you have to have the right things. And one other point I want to make sure to get in there about the Rockets. This is another one of those misconceptions from people who use shorthand. And in this case, it's a D'Antoni shorthand, not a Rockets shorthand. And that is 
people assume that because they're the Rockets and it's a Mike D'Antoni team, seven seconds or less, everything else, that they run a ton. And the Rockets do not. They are opportunistic, for sure. And they are actually the most effective transition team in terms of points per possession. But in terms of transition frequency, they're 12th in the league. They, they're they actually bottom five in terms of running off steals because they have guys that are comfortable with that. And they're they're spectacular when they run in transition. But if you the other calibrator, and I use this from Cleaning the Glass, which I really like. So what they do is they say basically the proportion of possessions that a team plays that are in half-court offense versus in transition. And the Rockets are middle of the road. They're almost exactly at league average there. And Houston is, they're the the most effective transition offense in the league in points per possession. They're the second most effective half-court offense. So they're still ridiculous. But this idea of, oh, well, it's a Mike D'Antoni team, so they're go, go, go. That doesn't really reflect them, though it hasn't hurt the Rockets in any way. It's just different from how they're perceived. Yeah, yeah I'm totally with you there. They're, they're paced after, especially the past... Uh... I haven't checked since I wrote the article, but when I when I when I filed there over the last fifteen games, they were the slowest team in the league in terms of pace. And I know pace stats aren't, aren't perfect, and a lot just has to do with how long you actually run your half court offense. And I'm assuming they they force other teams to run their half court offense more than more than others too. But that's that's another point to it. Yeah, that's key. That's key. And their their half court defense forces teams to move slowly because of the switch heavy nature of it. A lot of times opponents have to use the first five to 10 seconds after they can't get a transition look just to figure out what they want to do. And so, yeah, they, they, and I think that's very fortunate for them. I think it really does help them out, but yeah, they are, they're doing a good job of getting back in transition overall and they have to because you know that's that's a, a key part of defense for almost every successful defensive team. Plenty more to talk about with Sirotohi, but I need to take a moment to tell you about our friends at BetDSI. As many of you know, March Madness is well underway, so you can go to BetDSI and check out all the matchups. I am recording this on Thursday. Just watched a, a fascinating slate of. Sweet 16 games, so now one more day of Sweet 16, then going into the Elite Eight, all sorts of different things, plenty of upsets, which can be a a fun thing no matter what, but it can be interesting if you choose to wager on it as well, and BetDSI is a wonderful place to do it. They are top-rated business on review sites, easy-to-use, fast-playing interface, more than 20 years in the business, and if you're interested, you can bet games as they go live in-game wagering options now and throughout the tournament. So if you feel like you have a better read on where a game is going than other people do, it's a great way to, to make some extra cash, and you can do that throughout entire games and events. BetDSI has great customer service, available 24-7, 365, and massively importantly, they have a built a reputation on fast payment of winnings. So you can get a $25 NCAA tournament bet just for registering at BetDSI, and if you use the promo code MADGM, you get a 200% member bonus on your first deposit. Again, that promo code is MADGM, and don't sit on the sidelines this March Madness. Use BetDSI and the promo code MADGM to start winning today. So we can move on from them to a team that you've followed closely for a lot of good reasons, the Toronto Raptors. And I think the Raptors are, and have been the entire year, one of the league's best stories. And it has been remarkable how they have succeeded. And I think this is the best argument in favor of Dwayne Casey winning coach of the year. I haven't made my own determination yet. We still have a few weeks to go in the season. But I think the best argument for Casey is that they have had 
this sea change, especially offensively, but they're having a wonderful year defensively as well. They're currently fourth in both offense and defense, which is amazing. They've done that despite not drastically changing their personnel. And the changes have mostly been empowering young players, which is, again, good coaching. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just, I think they're making the best argument you can for for continuity and not even necessarily continuity of players, but continuity of the coach. Because, you know, they could have gone another direction and said, hey, we're going to change our system probably means that we should change our coach. But at the same time, you know, if you can't change your, your your personnel and and there's no and there's no issues or few issues between your personnel and your coach, then you kind of end up in a situation where if you do want to change things, it might be best to stick with a guy that they know because let's say like a guy like guy like Kyle Lowry has clashed with a lot of coaches he's had in the past. It's a very like special. It's a back and forth relationship, but it's a very special relationship that he has with uh with Dwayne Casey and he's never really easily trusting the other coach he's had in his life before. So, you know, I mean, I don't want to I'm, I'm sure Lowry has grown a ton since since uh since his last stops where you know he had some issues in Houston. So, you know, maybe things go differently, but there's also very easily a world in which the Raptors decide that they're going to bring in a completely new coach and let's say it's somebody extremely qualified, but at the same time He's going to not have a, an established relationship with this guy who's an all-star on the team and say, hey, we want you to sacrifice a bunch of shots. We know you're an all-star and we know that the second that you got to to Toronto, they became a 47-plus win team and, and started breaking all these franchise records. Um we don't really care about that. We just want you to. We just want you to do it our way, and that goes for Demar too, who is also who also you know became an all star with his system, and you know has really benefited from it. He's he basically has been asked to change a great deal of of his game stylistically and as far as habitually what he likes to do. I think it's a lot. It's a much harder ask of a guy who just walked in the door, as qualified as he might be, as it is a guy who you know has has, uh, has been through the, those losses with those players, and also has the exact same understanding of we need to do this because I was in the room when we got swept by Cleveland. Yeah, it, it's worked out really well for them. It would have taken a little bit less, just a little bit less flexibility from either Casey slash the coaching staff or the star players for that not to have worked. But you are right that in this case, you know, it it gave them the credibility to make this change together. And it is really what has unlocked a lot of serious potential with the Raptors. They've also been helped by Cleveland not having nearly as good a year for whatever reasons. But yeah, yeah, that's the one thing I like to say about it too is that the Raptors have improved a ton. They have improved a ton, but that is not nearly as important as the fact that Cleveland looks much worse. Oh yeah, I mean Cleveland. Last time I checked, they were 29th in in defense, and that's problematic. I mean, against anybody, you could make an argument, and I would, that especially LeBron James, who's been in show mode a lot defensively during the regular season, that they will step it up a level. But A, that's hard to do, and B, they don't really have that lock-in type of personnel as much anymore as they used to, and now partially because of the scheme adjustments and also the Raptors just having so much more depth and the Celtics, I have, I've done a good job of this too. We don't know if, how, when they're going to be healthy and all that, but they, the Cleveland doesn't have as many advantages as they used to against these teams. And it is entirely possible that LeBron is still enough because he's LeBron James. And that is, a. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, I think, you know, if, if LeBron James wakes up and he's feeling good and he plays 44 minutes effectively and he decides that the, that 
the Cleveland is going to the finals. That there's not really much that anybody can do about it. Like that's just kind of that's what it's going to come down to. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. And let's get back to the Raptors though a little bit. I I think that the most striking thing and what I've actually as much as I've enjoyed the way the starters and especially Lowry and DeRozan have affected the offense, DeRozan taking more threes, moving the ball better, all that's great. The time that I most enjoy watching them is when those guys are off the floor because some of the bench lineups that they put out there, which are typically not exclusively, but typically exclusively bench players, that they play with so much energy, they play really good defense. And a lot, one of the stories you hear all around the league is, oh, young guys just don't play defense. Their young guys do play defense. And also the skill development of a lot of the guys in that unit, and one to single out is Pascal Siakam. Siakam looks like a completely different player right now than he did when he entered the league. Yeah, yeah, I think skill de- skill development is is one of the uh one of the other plot points with this team that's really interesting. Tiakam's probably the best example of it. I th- I think Jonas Valančiūnas is a very close second in the improvements that he's he's made on the offensive end. He used to be, you know, it used to be that you threw the ball into Jonas, you weren't going to see it again. Didn't matter if he got doubled. Didn't it didn't matter what side it was on. He was he was mo- pretty much going to get his shot shot up and he was very effective in the post. He's also one of those guys who's really good good at getting that second rebound, not putting his uh not putting his arms down and just getting it right back up there so generally not a bad play but it wasn't exactly the most dynamic thing that you could do and it's not really a situation that he found himself in a lot either because he wasn't really a guy that could be trusted down the stretch to 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 play high you know high stakes minutes and now you see him and he's making cross-court skip passes he's passing out of doubles to the other side on the the opposite corner the post to repost off off of off of dribble handoffs he's finding cutters like he's just doing things that i never imagined would be possible for him to be quite honest and you know it doesn't even get into the fact that he's you know he's taking threes now this is a guy that you know you never would have imagined him being able to to extend his his range that far just completely changed the way that he he's played and as a result has ended up strengthening the parts of his game that he you know, he used to rely on because now he's got he's got so much more in his arsenal and that goes to his face up game too and you know to your point on Siakam as well another guy who you know his his main skill was running the floor and he spent a lot of the season in in the G League last year he wasn't you know he wasn't part of the Raptors late rotation and you know to see him come in and he's basically if he gets a rebound the ball at the floor in transition you know sometimes it's still a mess and he'll you know he'll he'll occasionally get called for a charge he'll be out of control and just trying to kick to the guy in the corner but first of all it's it's awesome that he can make that pass he's great now it kind of just he's starting to be able to avoid that rotation and just like he finds Jakob Pertl for it for like two or three dunks a game at this point it feels like and just like you know he's his ball handling he's like got this transition uh transition spin move that he likes now that was in early in the season it's uh it was it was a bit of a mess but it's it's really coming along that's one of the really interesting things about watching this team actually is that a lot of these things that were so messy and would make you cringe earlier in the season they're really starting to come come into fruition now as these guys uh as these guys develop their th- those skills and the thing that actually makes me think about is you know has, has NBA skill development ever been this good because you know it, it never used to be that you know you would get you get these guys who can't shoot and all of a sudden they're shooting and that's actually become like the development philosophy for a couple of teams now they're just saying yeah you can teach a guy to shoot and you know you can teach these guys to expand their games in ways that you know really really you just couldn't even have imagined 
I've been very intrigued by the way that teams have been getting guys more comfortable with the ball in their hands and high pressure. And some of that can be just these players have experience with that earlier in their lives, like high school or sometimes college, depending on the player. Like I would assume Siakam was by far the best player on his high school team. I do not, I have not checked into his high school past to see if that's true. Shooting is, is certainly there. And a point I wanted to make with Valanchunas that is exceedingly important for him. And I think this is the model for a lot of bigs that are younger than he is that are going to be coming into the league. So over the last couple of years, he's taking more mid-rangers, sure. But he basically, con- Valanchunas basically converted his shots from 10 feet to the three-point line. So basically from, from 10 to 24 to threes. And he's shooting, incidentally, he, you wouldn't expect this. He's shooting a better percentage from three than he did even from mid-range last year. That's a little bit ridiculous. But just the sheer fact that three is worth more than two. If you take those shots out and then the other benefit you get is forcing opponents to actually defend you out there. If a team is defending Valanchunas at 12 feet out, that player, because presumably that person is seven feet or close to it, probably has a wingspan in that range. If somebody's driving, if somebody's making a cut, they can help off that even if they're respecting Valanchunas' shot. If he is at 26 feet, you cannot physically be in the same two places as you were before. And I think that's really helped them out as well. And that is the element that can really moving forward. And that's not saying, oh, every, you know, like Boban Marjanovic needs to start shooting threes or anything crazy like that. But it is a benefit that is certainly possible for players and teams to cultivate so much more than they did even five years ago much less 15 to 20 yeah yeah absolutely and like you like you said like there's 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 definitely some noise in, in his accuracy numbers but to the point of you know you can't be in those two places at once it also means that when he's shooting he is wide open like i if not, I haven't took too many even semi-contested three-pointers this season. When guys close out, he generally just drives. And, you know, when a center is driving on a center that's that's already closed out on him, I don't know too many point guards or any guards really that are going to step in front. I mean, w- one of them is Lowry, and he's already on the Raptors. So it's usually it's usually a free lane for him to for him to go and drive. Yeah, that's a great a great point. And and you're happy, again, like the Rockets, but to a different degree, you're forcing defenses to make choices they don't want to make. And that is a good thing. And if you know, even if Valanciunas doesn't shoot 43% from three, which I would not expect, even if that drops a little bit, you're still forcing defenses to make choices that they don't want to do. And as you said, and this is an extremely important point, he is now more viable in late game situations. Now, they will have to be more judicious about it. I mean, the most memorable late game play I remember making, he did have one late three in a different game, but the buzzer beating dunk just because those almost never happened. That was against Milwaukee in that game, forced overtime, and probably should have been an and one, which would have theoretically won them the game if he made the free throw. I'm not saying Valanchunas needs to be on the floor every time out there. There, That will be a complicated decision that Dwayne Casey needs to make. But having another option, especially somebody with different strengths and weaknesses than some of their other options, is valuable. And it creates a little bit more challenge for a coach because that if you play him, that means you're telling somebody else no. But as long as everybody's engaged and willing to do in the playoff context, whatever is best, whatever is, th- is the most likely outcome to win, then you're, a team is in a better place place for that yeah yeah for sure i mean i don't think the the raptors are really going to be a team that has a set 
closing five. You know, that's that's a thing that people kind of freak out about. I mean, I don't know if people like Raptors fans freak out about it really. And it's kind of just like, you know, you got to you gotta just live with that with this team. They have the four. It's usually Kyle, Fred and uh, DeMar and Serge. And then, you know, the last guys on the basis of what the matchup is and who's playing well and, and what they're kind of trying to do defensively, et cetera, et cetera. So having Jonas be one of those options is really, really good because if you can just play solid enough defense, he's just such an asset on offense that he he will make up for it in crunch time. It just makes makes them so much more dynamic because there's really nobody on the team that runs those those dribble handoff plays as effectively as, as he does with uh, with the bigs. I mean, Serge can kind of do it, but he's kind of a weak screener and he's just annoying and doesn't really roll or pop with as much uh, force or as conviction as he really should and that's always you know not making decisions in crunch time is always is always a bad thing I think and Jonas is just one of those guys who's kind of every time he makes a move now it's going to pull somebody over and I think that's you know that's just that's that's an exceptionally impressive it's a it's a valuable thing for you to have in a in in a guy that's really like at the in those lineups is probably your third your third option on offense for him to be pulling that much gravity is uh you know it's 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 really really good for the raptors and i think there's certain certain defenses that you know it does make sense to, for for him to be out there like when we watch the rockets game and i don't know if this will carry over into the playoffs because i'm sure the rockets will realize that they should just shoot some mid-range jumpers but the way that you know they were just letting letting chris or james or whoever kind of just drive in because they knew that you know Jonas didn't have to go their way into space because Chris or James doesn't really want to take a mid-range jump or they want to get to the rim so they were like okay let's just let's just have you kind of planted out here and you know be dynamic and and move around but you know it's just a lot less space and that makes his job a lot easier one other Raptors element I wanted to talk with you about and this might just be something that is unanswerable at this point but for those of us who are salary cap nerds Toronto has been a very interesting situation because last year, last summer, they traded Damari Carroll to the Brooklyn Nets with a first round pick, ostensibly to avoid the luxury tax. I mean, especially when they ended up losing Patterson and everything else, he would have helped. But that has led many people, sometimes myself included, I'm a little bit ambivalent about this, to say, oh, well, what would they do to duck the tax next year? Because Fred Van Vliet's going to get a raise. They're just just by virtue of being another year under contract. Most of their guys, other than DeRozan, whose contract is flat, they go up year to year. So you have that question. And the shorthand that a lot of people used was, oh, well, they'll trade Valanciunas. Certainly still possible if they wanted to. But so there are kind of two questions. One is, I think they might be willing to pay the electric tax because this team is just good enough to make it worth it. And then the second part is, Valanciunas has made it harder for the player that got dumped or whatever word you want to use to be him because he's been a, a much more valuable contributor to this year's team. Yeah, I mean, at this point, I don't think that you can trade Valanciunas just to get him off the books just because of uh, of where the Raptors are. The thing that does help him is that Lucas Nogueira's contract is going to be off the books, and I don't think they're going to keep him. I think you can use some of that money to uh, to sign Fred. You're going to have to go over the tax if you want to retain this team. I also think that the Raptors are, you know, one of, one of the things that, that's going to come up with this is they're going to kind of have to decide which one of these guys they want to keep. And... You know, it could be Fred, but like, I mean, let's let's consider the Van Vliet versus versus Wright scenario. Those are two backup point guards who, you know, they, they do they do spend a lot of time on the floor together, and you could, in some in some sense, you could justify it because of how much the Raptors like to go to their two point guard lineup. But are you really prepared to to invest that much of your cap space into two backup point guards? 
So like that, that becomes a question for them. And it's kind of like a matter of how much you're willing to stomach in these next few years and how much you really believe in, uh, in this, in this young group being a bridge towards the next era versus, versus whether it's more so about winning a championship right now. And this is just a bench that works and, you know, it might not necessarily be, be like a big long-term play that you want to, that you want to invest in, which is actually one of the, one of the interesting things that's happened with this season is that they were supposed to kind of, I don't think they thought that they were taking a step back, but, by any means but at the same time there's a there's a push on 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 developing their youth and you know if they had to lose some games in between just to get the process right they do it but in the meantime their youth is some one of the one of the best things that's that's happened for this team so it just just puts themselves in puts them in a in a really interesting conundrum and at the at the same time it's also a team that i think really believes in its ability to draft and replenish talent so if they have to let somebody walk and they get to a point where where a deal is just too hard to strike i think they're going to be prepared to walk away from it the logic there being similar to the Spurs, which Jonathan Simmons saying we can find the next Jonathan Simmons instead of paying the one we we cultivated already. Right. Let's hope they can do that with Kawhi Leonard too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see. But the Raptors also have a complicated decision coming up. Not immediately; they still have a couple more years with Lowry. And the other reason that they could keep both Van Vliet and Delon Wright who both have free agency before Lowry. So Van Vliet will be a free agent in 2018, DeLon Wright in 2019, Kyle Lowry in 2020, would be if they either felt one of those two guys could replace him. That will be, I think, Lowry's age 33 season, something like that. I can't remember exactly what it will be. But that's one approach. And the other one is, okay, this is going to be, 2018 is going to be a more constricted salary cap circumstance. Obviously, everything is more constricted even next year than 2016 was and to a point 2017. So the logic could be these guys are going to be restricted free agents. We might not have to deal with them getting overpaid. And so then it's a little bit of a weird proposition for most ownership groups, but you can just do the play it by ear thing. So, okay, if Fred Van Vliet gets X amount of dollars, we we can be happy with him. And, and the goal with all of these guys, and this doesn't always work, is to get them at a contract that you could eventually move them or theoretically somebody else if, if they delivered well enough to to make it work. And I would say that incidentally, Alan Crabb did not fit this idea, but he ended up getting traded away anyway. I think that worked out reasonably well for, for Portland. They got under the tax themselves. But the approach there of basically saying, hey, let's see where the market goes is actually something that works really well in Toronto's favor because there just aren't that many teams with a ton of space and they don't really have another way to be proactive about it other than maybe going on the free agent market themselves and getting a free agent. So they can just they can just be patient and read it. And then if they have to find the next Van Vliet, they can do it. But if they can get the current one at a price they live with, they just bring them back. Yeah, there's also the thing with Van Vliet was also because he was undrafted is that uh, there's only a certain amount that they can pay him. And I don't I think so for some matters at some point. Yeah, I, he's, he's arenas limited. And so the Cliff's Notes version of that is this is the same thing. The guy who made this famous beyond Gilbert Arenas, which inspired the provision, it didn't exist then, is Jeremy Lin. So what that means is you can't pay more than the non-taxpayer mid-level exception. So it's a higher mid-level exception. You can't pay them more than the mid-level exception for the first two years. And then this is a contract where it doesn't have to follow the rules in terms of 8% or 5% raises per year. You could raise it all the way up to, but it doesn't have to be to their maximum. So what the Rockets did with Jeremy Lin was they gave Lin and Omar Ashik contracts that were at that amount that they could do for the first two years and then had max after that. So they spiked up and 
and it was complicated for the Knicks and Bulls respectively. And so a team could do that with Fred Van Vliet. The challenge with it from from the perspective of the offering team is that they it's not like oh sweet well we can offer this guy and it counts as the middle of exception our books no 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 it counts for the offering team at the average value of the contract whatever that ends up being and because so few teams have cap space there just are not that many opportunities for teams to say hey we're gonna try to steal fred van vliet from them it is possible of course it is possible because you know somebody like indiana like if they realize for whatever reason that Fred Van Vliet's their guy. They can make a, they can structure an offer sheet that would be very hard for, for Toronto to, to manage. But there just aren't that many teams like that this year. And because he's restricted, if those teams choose to use their space in the first seven days of free agency before the restricted guys can sign, really sign offer sheets, then the Raptors are, they're golden, basically. Yeah. And the other thing is also like, it's not like, it's not the type of decision that I think will really, really put the Raptors into a bind. And I, I love Fred Van Vliet. I've tried to get FBV MVP chance going in the ACC like he's that was a lot of acronyms at once he's like he's awesome but at, at the end of the day you know if there's a contract that's gonna put the Raptors into a bind Masai Ujiri I don't think is gonna you know complicate the Raptors cap situation for Fred Van Vliet and I think most other teams would also know that yeah I think that's true and like so many other teams this year it's it's a very different struggle now than it used to be because it was you know how do we use the space now it's more asset maximization and have you OG and Anobi doesn't play the same position but the example of that and finding guys from from 905 developing them like they did with Fred Van Vliet it has to give them confidence to to do this moving forward and the stakes are are high as long as the Raptors want to be competitive because backup point guard matters you know it, it's not the definitive thing a team is generally speaking not going to win or lose a playoff series because of backup point guards but it can affect seating it can affect a lot of other things and resilience to injury is a very important part of that and I think the Raptors have dealt with it when they when they've had to this year so he helps but isn't mandatory. And that's the position of strength that every team wants to be in, not the position where, oh God, we have to keep this guy. We're, we're gone without them. That style doesn't help with negotiations. And other teams also can, can see blood in the water then too. Still plenty more to talk about with Sirit, but have a message from our friends at TrueCar. Even if you are a big time basketball fan, there might be a few facts about the game that you do not know. Like, did you know that the first hoops were actually peach baskets or that a warm basketball is bouncier than a cold one or that players can run as much as four miles during a game? Well, here's another fact you might not know that is actually really helpful if you need to buy a car. True Car also helps people get used cars. That's right. TrueCar is not just for buying new cars. With their certified dealer network and nationwide inventory of nearly 1 million used cars, you'll enjoy real pricing on actual inventory and a simpler buying experience whether you buy new or used. And with TrueCar, users can see what others paid so they know if they're getting a good deal before they buy. They're also more likely to enjoy a faster buying experience by connecting with TrueCar certified dealers. When you are ready to buy a new or used car, check out TrueCar and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. One other thing I want to talk about briefly with you, just because you, I, I, I can't think of anybody that'd be better to talk about with it, is I've been, I don't know, malaise is probably too strong a word for it. But I enjoy the years like last year 
where the MVP race is more competitive going down to the wire, especially if there can be differences of opinion. I enjoyed that last year. It did lead to some silly stuff, and it's led to some frustrating revisionist history recently where you know, I, I, there's some stuff with Russell Westbrook and all that kind of thing. But I don't know. It, we're, we're still about three weeks away from the end of the season, and it seems exceedingly unlikely that it will be anybody other than James Harden. And I appreciate that. I mean, it's it's has happened before two years ago when Steph was the unanimous MVP. It was a similar thing at this point. And I don't know. It, I, I, I just, I like that drama. I don't know why I like that drama because the playoff stuff is so much more interesting and actually on the basketball court as opposed to an esoteric argument. But I do kind of miss it. Like, yeah, I kind of, I see where you're coming from. This year, it hasn't bothered me, A, because I really like James Harden and I, and I want him to, to win the MVP award that was wrongfully taken from him last year. In On the same token, there's also, there's so many interesting things to follow this year. The rookie of the year race is neck and neck. I changed my mind on it so much. I love Donovan Mitchell and I and I love I love Ben Simmons. That's a really interesting debate to me because they're they're two completely different players stylistically and just as far as like prototypes for for what they represent for the future, which is really essentially what the rookie of the year award is and you know, at the same time, I mean, every night when you look at when you look at to see who's playing, you're like, oh my god, okay, so these are the playoff implications of this. And, you know, sometimes you can't even keep up with it to the point where you're just like, okay, screw it, I'm just going to check what it looks like at the end of the night. But, like, there's just, there's something interesting going on every night. There's, when you look at both both conferences, I th- I don't think you can reasonably confidently say who's going to come out of them. And I think that's pretty awesome as well. You know, you've got the Defensive Player of the Year award, which isn't like, it's not exactly the most compelling award this season because I think it's more so like the guys who deserve it have been injured and there's just been like nobody's really stuck out and been like the guy who's for for 75 games carried a team but at the same time like that that's like that's not a award that's been decided by any means so that's that's kind of interesting as well I think you know it might have bothered me if there was less stuff to talk about but it's just like yeah okay James Harden's the MVP what what else is going on tonight that's true and another one I'll bring up which doesn't get thought about a lot until the last week of the season but all NBA first team forwards is going to be brutal and first team center is going to be important too because Joel Embiid it sounds like there are structures in his contract where it's a very big difference if he gets first team versus not so you have a lot to look forward to there. And and the playoff picture, something that, that you reminded me of when we were talking about this, is also the way that the uncertainty with, with teams all over the board, especially the injuries in the West, that we're going to see genuinely fascinating first-round series all over the board. That doesn't mean every series is going to be close. It, that's just not the way it works. But, I mean, we're going to have teams, in all likelihood, at towards the bottom of the conference in each in, like, in the playoff picture that are going to be competitive. I mean, Miami, if they can be healthy, they're, they just scare everybody because their defense is really good. Milwaukee ceiling questions. I've been frustrated with them the last couple weeks, but they're there. And then in the West, a lot of it is injury based. I mean, my, you know, Kawhi is, is Kawhi, Jimmy Butler and the Wolves. That totally changes their dynamic. And then the other teams like Utah, I mean, Utah basically. The only reason they're as low in the race is because they were missing Gobert for so long, and it took them a little while to figure this out. I mean, Donovan Mitchell getting the opportunity, delivering on the opportunity, and then Quinn Snyder adjusting the rotation because of that. These teams are just really, really good. And so I don't know yet where the jumble is going to stop, but I'm super excited to see what happens there. And I'm excited for a playoffs where how I feel about almost every series, even the top teams, is going to be affected by 
seating that could change up to the last day of the season. Yeah, that's that's a fascinating thing about it because I mean, I think, you know, it's actually I think it's gonna be really really frustrating for for uh, people like you because I know that you you generally do a lot of playoff preview stuff and you're kind of gonna have to sneak it all in in the in the last two days. Luckily, luckily for me, nobody asked me to do stuff like that. So I'm just not as uh, not as good at it. So, uh, so you know, I, f- I feel first of all, I'm just gonna, I'm just going to apologize to you in advance for for the uh, the stuff that you're going to be going through in those last 48 hours between uh, between knowing what the matchups are and when the playoffs start. But uh, but yeah, like to your point though, like it is it is ex- it is exceptionally interesting, and it makes you think like who's who's going to be the the first round out. And when you look at the schedule, like you look at okay, like let's 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 look at Toronto, who I think is going to go pretty deep in the playoffs. I don't think they're going to like really fall back in their old history. But at the same time, like do do you really want to enter a series with uh, with Milwaukee where you you don't have the best player on the floor? What if uh, you know let's say they're two they're two point five games ahead now, but Philly? I mean Philly's just the way they're playing right now, the way they put it together, the way they defend, and and Ben Simmons being, I mean, I think he'll be. Time will tell if he'll be appropriately scouted in the playoffs. Isn't is another team that I think you know is prime for an upset, especially you know with Boston being unhealthy, Cleveland just being completely on the rocks. I think Indiana is a team that just feels like it's been disrespected all season, and I don't really understand why they have you know the advanced stats back them up. They have a guy who you know is in month whatever of being a superstar and just nobody wants to believe it so i think they're going to want to prove something and it was just like across the board is you know what about like is port could portland put up a challenge against the warriors just so many so many matchups that just aren't and that's not going to be a first round matchup but those those there's so many matchups that you know previous years because we become so accustomed to the dominance of of the warriors and and the Cavs that you just didn't even think about matter like all this stuff really matters now and that's just like it's it's really fascinating to me because like let's say like the 6-3 is Portland and San Antonio. We don't know if Kawhi is going to be back, but that's a matchup that could really impact how Golden State does in the next round because those are two formidable teams that are going up and could actually give give either of those teams a challenge. Does Houston really want to play Utah with Gobert back the way they're the way that they're defending right now? Like it's it's kind of it's 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 a lot, and then you gotta you gotta add OKC to the mix, who kind of like they've if there's one team that's had the formula against Golden State, it's them. Or you're gonna have Russ versus Harden. Like it just there's so much, there's so much. That's all. <laughs> you can just talk about it all day. The most striking element to me at this point, because you, the only way to think about it is in the abstract, because there are so many different possibilities, and there are so few things that are set. You know, the Rockets being the one seed, the Warriors being the two. We're getting closer to Portland being the three. If they had won yesterday, I would feel even more solid about that. And then in the East, it's a pretty similar thing in terms of Boston and Toronto. But what I've been thinking about for the last couple of weeks, and Nate and I have been dance, dancing around this on Dunked On, is this is the year of any year that I've covered the NBA, so going back to 2009, that overall, for most teams, there is the largest disparity between ceiling and floor in terms of what they could be in the playoffs. There are basically no known commodities other than maybe the Warriors. And Philly is a great example of this. Philadelphia, other than J.J. Redick, basically nobody on their team has played meaningful playoff minutes in their lives. Most of those guys haven't even played a ton of meaningful regular season minutes in their lives. And so they could work. You know, Joel Embiid could walk onto the could walk into the Eastern playoffs, and as long as they don't play the Cavs, he could be the best player on the floor in any round. That's just how good he could be. But it could also be that the way you approach him, making him dribble, Ben Simmons' reluctance to and ineffectiveness as a jump shooter, 
all of those things could absolutely not work. That same general idea is true with Oklahoma City. I mean, Oklahoma City, you, you taught up that they the Warriors number. The two games they beat the Warriors in were two of the best single team, single game performances I have seen this entire season. But they also have some of the worst performances by good teams in the entire year. So that is exciting because it's means that we're going to be watching and learning a lot as it goes on. And it also is terrifying to those who believe that prediction is their game. And I don't stress as much about that at this point, because I, I, I do my best to like laying out this is what could happen and not being as married to it. But I think we're going to see a lot of predictions go terribly wrong this year. And I'm good with that. I think that leads to a more fun product overall. But it certainly is stressful when if you ascribe your own value as an analyst to saying X team and X number of games and thinking that if it's anything different from that, you're wrong because anybody who thinks they know what the Sixers are right now in the playoffs is full of themselves. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. And luckily, also another thing that nobody asked me to do as well. So I think it's a uh, it's this is really the type of playoffs that fans have been clamoring clamoring for for a really long time. And I I just really hope there's no more injuries. I'm just so excited to see what happens. And I think you know I think it's going to be a very clarifying postseason for a lot of teams. Like let's look at Indiana, Philadelphia are kind of new in this. They got to figure out like what's what's real here. What do we have to go back and take to take back to the drawing board? How much of an element is Simmons jumper really? How gimmicky is are the Pacers? And then you got a team like Washington where they got to figure out: Do we actually work well together? Like that's that's kind of their biggest question. Like can we can we break out of the malaise and you know actually like can we pretend to like each other for long enough that the exceptional talent on our team can actually can actually play together and then you know any any team with Giannis has has a lot of questions like the only team that that I look at and I think like oh there's not a whole bunch of questions in the east is is Miami because you can't feel like okay they're just just well coached they're getting in it's not like you know they don't have too much pressure to do anything outside of outside of make the playoffs and Kyrie in a different circumstance, hopefully he can get back to a hundred percent or as close as he can be. I mean, he's put on some of the best scoring performances I've ever seen. I'm going to end this with, but, oh yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I, the reason I left, Bo- yeah, just the reason I left Boston, I was just cause like they have so many injuries that I just don't think they're going to be able to answer any of the questions that they have. And that includes Hayward. I mean, for them, let's say they did flame out of the playoffs. They were healthy. They were like, okay, we're adding, we're adding an all-star. So it's fine. Right. And this can be a lost year in the playoffs in that sense and still be a massive success of a season for them the way that Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown have developed this year. Getting the ecosystem right, even without Hayward, is is a very important step. Al Horford has looked good this year. He's looked great at, at many moments this year. But I want to end this on a question that I've been asking more and more, and it ties in with the playoff things we've been talking about. So I have been excluding Rockets Warriors for seemingly obvious reasons. But if you could pick one series to see in the East and West in any round, so it doesn't have to be first round, be whatever round, what series do you want to see the most? All right, I'm going to start with the East. I think the East is, is probably going to be a lot easier. Um... It's going to be Philly. Somebody, I really, I want to see Philadelphia. It's set up for it right now. Philadelphia, Cleveland. You know, future meets past. They're just the fireworks that would go off. And I know you said it doesn't have to be a certain round, but the fireworks that would go off if Cleveland lost in the first round. You could kind of see the blueprints for for how it would happen with them. Like, you just have nobody that could deal with Embiid. They're exceptional defensively. They're very long, and they can pretty much they can pretty much withstand a a LeBron attack and have guys guys closing out pretty well as well. I just you know they are obviously very young and we're gonna have to see if uh 
if they if they have any issues because of that or because of you know things like Simmons jumper. But yeah, that would definitely be the one I'm most excited to see in the East. And then yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And there could also be a parallel there to the Oklahoma City Lakers series that was before OKC made their run, where even if they don't win, you see the signs of, okay, they're going to figure it out. And that would be pretty fun. I think for me, maybe it's just because I want to see NBA Twitter just melt down into a puddle. But for me, that series in the East would be Celtic Sixers, as long as the Celtics are healthy enough to do it. Just the, the, the stuff between those two fan bases and everything else. I mean, the downside of that series is whichever fan base makes it out is going to be insufferable from then until November, but the chaos would be pretty fun. But yes, Cavs Sixers is seriously in the conversation. Yeah, yeah. I think the thing with Boston is just that, like, I think they're they're just they're one of the more boring teams, and like, it's all relative. We're talking about some pretty exciting playoff teams here. They're one of the more. I know maybe it's because I just watch them so much in in the early going of the season, but it's kind of yeah. I'm just kind of like as much as it's going to be clarifying. Like I. I think we kind of get what they are without Hayward. So, you know, I just don't know how much more there would be to to learn from them. And okay, let's do let's do the West. The West is going to be really hard, I think. Uh, this is okay. Yeah, it's probably it's probably uh it's probably uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> okay, let's go Oklahoma Golden State. Yeah, that's that's what I was gonna say, but we just like if yeah, if he was healthy, that would be the one. That would be the one. But yeah, that's a good call. If, if we knew that Kawhi was gonna be 100 percent, Spurs Rockets is another one that I really want to see. Yeah, and Thunder Warriors. There, there are so many different elements to it with with these two teams. I mean, Paul George, his insertion into that series would be really really fun, and so much animosity, so much history between those teams, but also a lot of really good basketball players and scheme adjustments. Like those teams stress test the other one really really well which i enjoy quite a bit yeah yeah they really do that's the thing right like uh, yeah you got you got there like exactly with what i what i like about that matchup it's a shame that those are with more established commodities but i think that's the variance is part of what gets me off of teams like the wolves and the jazz in terms of that because you know they could put together some really fun series but it's not what necessarily what i want to see the most because the most is more like you know you when you go like going into a movie theater and you know you're going to enjoy it for whatever it is versus the variance and the unsure the uncertainty but i like that mix overall in the playoffs you want to have a couple series that have more volatility and some that you know are gonna gonna deliver mm-hmm. yeah yeah for sure like i, I think minnesota is the one team that like i just i think i'm not gonna be as excited to watch them play in the playoffs just because i think you know it's it's gonna kind of be the same story with them they're gonna show these flashes of brilliance with all their talent and they or will show all this potential but will ultimately just their downfall will be their complete inability to to, to execute or show any discipline on offense and it's just gonna be very frustrating to watch yeah i'm ready to be very frustrated by them i feel like that's just the inevitability of this year and just as they're figuring everything out anything else you feel we need to discuss we have already covered a lot of ground yeah i think we covered literally literally every playoff team and you know considering the playoffs are less than a month away i think uh and i think we pretty much covered it well thank you so much as always for taking the time thanks for having me Thanks again to Sirat Zoe for taking the time to come on. You can read her at The Athletic. You can read her at SB Nation. And a great way to keep track of all of her work is by following her on Twitter. Great handle, at Damien Trillard, D-A-M-I-A-N-T-R-I-L-L-A-R-D. 
great follow. I mean, she's also one of my favorite entertaining people on Twitter, but her pieces are excellent, and that's why I have her on the show. I'm excited to see where all of this goes. Still a couple weeks left in the regular season, then of course the playoffs are going to be fabulous. Sarah and I talked about it a lot at the end of the show, and the amount of uncertainty that remains in everything is both a little bit stressful, as somebody who prognostication is part of my job, but exciting, because unpredictability is is fun, and there's no other real way to replicate it. So, very excited about it. Real GM Radio is, of course, a great place to do that. If you want to support the show, you can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. You can also subscribe, download every episode. Really do appreciate that. Great way of showing it. Spread word, word of mouth, whether it's in person or online. It's really appreciated. People are finding the podcast every day, and I get emails and on that. And of course, the biggest thing you can do to support the show is to check out our sponsors. BetDSI, MadGM promo code gets you a 200% member bonus on your first deposit, and you can get a $25 NCAA tournament bet just for registering. Pretty awesome. True car, great place to buy new and used cars. And then you're welcome with Chael Sonnen that comes out twice a week on the Podcast One Network, which I'm so thrilled to be a part of. And it's been a great experience so far in this calendar year is really when the, when the changeover happened. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent on the show, Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com is the way to do it. I've gotten a lot over the last little while. I appreciate all of it. I'm going to try to respond. My standard promise is I will read everything I have. I can, will continue to, and I respond if and when I can. But I, I do promise you that I read it. Lots of fun stuff on the mascot bracket. I appreciate all of that and have passed some of it on to my sister. We'll pass the rest on in the very near future. So plenty to look forward to. We'll also do a draft catch up at some point after the NCAA tournament, still figuring out the timing on all that because of course the NCAA tournament timing ends pretty much with the playoffs. So have to balance everything else. I think of this as more of an NBA podcast, but it can go wherever I want. And I appreciate both Real GM for allowing that to happen and all of you for, for listening to indulge me in that way that this this can take so many different directions. If you want to check out my work, podcast with Nate Duncan, of course, Dunked On, Twitter NBA show going strong. We're getting ready for the playoff push. Not going to do as much in the rest of the regular season, and that is live alternate announcing is the way that we like to describe it. So it's kind of like a, a different commentary track on the game. We answer questions, all that. And we will do that a ton in the playoffs is the current plan. You can also check out patreon.com slash Duncan That's the venture that Nate and I have. We put out special podcasts, all that kind of stuff. And then my writing, The Athletic, Real GM, have a new uh, CBA encyclopedia piece on the Stepien rule, have uh, some off-season preview stuff coming up for The Athletic in the near future. And then, you know, some stuff at the Sporting News when I have the opportunity. You can still buy my book. It's, it's around 100 things Warriors fans should know and do before they die. It's available in pretty much any form except for audiobook. I may do that at some point, but not entirely sure yet. So thank you so much for listening. As always, take care and make it a great day. Whenever you look for news, you may feel forced to choose between partisans in mainstream media and conspiracists in alternative media. 
That's where the lost debate steps in. I'm Corey Bradford, a progressive political organizer turned TikTok star who also once hosted a Fox News radio show. I'm Ricky Schlatt, a Gen Z New York Post columnist and libertarian fighting to protect free speech. And I'm Ravi Gupta, a former staffer for Obama and school principal who also fought alongside Republicans on charter schools. And we launched The Lost Debate, a podcast and YouTube show for the political eclectics who've lost trust in a polarizing partisan world, but who also reject the disinformation and manipulation in alternative media. Instead of being at each other's throats, we focus on bringing new perspectives to the table in constructive debate that sounds less like crossfire and more like discussions between real people. Check out The Lost Debate on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. want to go yes go travel go explore go find a new city go reconnect with friends go have fun that's why we created ongo the trusted rapid covid19 self-test ongo gives you accurate covid test results and peace of mind in just minutes so anywhere you go you know you'll know if you're covid19 free and you'll know you're protecting loved ones ongo is readily available at letsongo.com amazon walgreens or walmart.com use promo code ongo15 for 15 percent off at letsongo.com today